Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about the second wave of Detroit techno, artists like Underground Resistance, Richie Houghton's Plus 8 label, and Carl Craig. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And that means I'm here with Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, by the way, to continue our discussion of Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture by Simon Reynolds. And today we're going to be talking about the future sound of Detroit, Underground Resistance, Plus 8, and Carl Craig. Ryan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And just to clarify to everybody, I heard this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Someone was saying, are you Ryan Hardness? And I'm like, that would be a really good DJ name. But no, I'm Ryan Harkness. And I just wanted to enunciate that just for all you listeners out there so you can Google me and find out more about me and all that good stuff. And that was Ryan Hardness, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nate. <laughs> anytime, anytime. So fun chapter. I think it could have stood to have happened earlier in our chronology, don't you think? Uh, Well, I mean, you want to kind of separate it from the first wave of Detroit. And uh, all of this is starting to happen around 93, 94 or something like that. So I I think it sits in a a solid spot. And and it's interesting. Doing the research on this chapter, there was a lot of uh, bleed over from the last chapter with with the Dark Side artists. Uh, Four Hero actually talks about going to Detroit and hanging out with with Kevin Saunderson's Derek May and even uh, Mad Mike Banks. And Mad Mike Banks was actually the guy who convinced War Hero to not become a DJ and just stick to producing. Because I guess at the time, that was where the, the real money was at. Uh, so you can blame uh, Mad Mike for that or, uh, or thank him uh, if you really enjoy Four Hero's uh, prodigious output. So there's a lot of crossover. All these guys were all hanging out together. So the fact that when I was reading it and I found out that, that there's a lot of crossover between all these guys at the same time makes me think Simon Reynolds got it right. Okay, fair enough. I was just, when I was reading through, I kept thinking that it was relevant to discussions of 91, 92, and the stuff there, because definitely these people were a force on the European and British scene through this whole period. And, um, but we should start with the remains of the original wave of Detroit techno artists, which the Belleville Three and their uh, some, sometimes friend Eddie Folks, Fast Ed, is he Fast Eddie? Or I, I can't remember what his nickname is, but anyway. Those guys had all been established when last we saw them. They were a huge part of the Acid House success in Britain in 89 and 90. And in fact, um, Derek May's Strings of Life by his Cogno Dance Rhythm is Rhythm was a massive dance hit there in, I want to say, 90. And Kevin Saunderson's Inner City had top 10 and number one hits in 88, 89. So they're big, and then they're not, like – 
Reynolds says that the scene peaked, the first wave of Detroit techno peaked in 89. They had the Shelter Club, the Music Institute of Detroit, which was the one that had Derek May and Kevin Saunderson and Shay Damier and Dee Wynn all DJing there. And it was kind of the ideal techno club as conceived by the Belleville Three and their pals. And then it all went wrong in 1990. Music Institute closed, grand opening, grand closing. Techno 2 came out on Virgin. The first techno comp, of course, is what named the genre and identified it as separate from Chicago House and uh, brought these guys forward. But the follow-up comp was not well-received at all. It was a massive bust. And uh, Inner City, Kevin Saunderson pursued an R&B direction that Reynolds calls ill-advised, So, um, and the hits stopped coming. Juan Atkins uh, moved Model 500 to a new label because he felt like the label he was on was giving Inner City all the attention. And then Derek May essentially produces one more track in the 90s and calls it a decade, doesn't do any more. So the whole first wave of DJ producers in Detroit uh, were kind of taken out, although they were very busy as DJs on the on the circuit in Europe. But that's another problem because they're out of the picture in Detroit. Yeah, and these guys being uh, such such influential people in the community, and and being the ones that are hooking everybody up and setting people up and letting them use their gear, uh, it, it's it's a real loss to have them jet setting off to Europe all the time. But you can't blame them because that's you know the we're we're past the point where DJs aren't making a lot of money anymore, and if you have the opportunity opportunity to go over to Europe and play for, you know, a thousand pounds at least uh, for, you know, uh, a, a one or two hours set over there, then, then you're going to take it. But uh, just to put the Detroit techno scene into perspective, it wasn't it wasn't this massive thing to begin with. Uh, Richie Houghton's early days at the shelter, the shelter was uh, like primarily like a goth industrial club and it was 200 capacity. It was like in the basement of another club. And then the Music Institute, uh, which was basically the techno club, the techno hub in the city was even smaller. It was like 100, 150 people and had no liquor license. So it was always pretty fringe and niche. So uh, I think we've mentioned this before, like Detroit, the Detroit club scene was never bopping the way, say, Chicago was or Europe or anything else like that. This is uh, really a city where uh, these guys kind of turned inwards and spent a lot of time in the studio and and there's took their sonic influences and created something new and that's where the that's where the real action was kind of happening yeah absolutely detroit was always essentially just sort of an adjunct to chicago when chicago's house scene was truly popular locally but like we talked about before the chicago scene got caught between a pincer of regulation on the one hand and and incursions from organized crime on the other and the problems with tracks records and etc and had faded away by this time but a new vanguard of Detroit producers come along, and there's two primary record labels that dominated, Underground Resistance and Plus 8, which was Richie Houghton's label. So, you know, right away, I, I mean, I'm sure there was a gap, but telescoping it with our historical perspective, there's there's another wave of Detroit techno, and that's what we're talking about now. And, and this crop of guys had, and they were all guys again, had um, a different set of influences. The first wave of Detroit techno were had 70s influences. They came up on Funkadelic's flashlight. Uh, flashlight. They had Kraftwerk influences, uh, you know, Euro Disco, Giorgio Moroder. These these new wave of guys had 80s influences. They were big on electro, Africa Bambata, UK synth pop, New Order, the Human League, uh, industrial, uh, not just the Euro stuff like. Uh, Front 242 and the whole Euro body music stuff, but also the homegrown industrial scene with with Ministry and uh, you know Skinny Puppy and and all that kind of stuff in there in, in the mix. And so Reynolds says this resulted in a harsh Detroit hardcore that was parallel to the brutalism in Europe. Yeah, Richie Houghton really uh, pushes the fact that that's that's where he came in, and and you know I I came in from a from a similar direction. That was kind of the music that spoke to me at first that I was interested in, and then I got led over into electronic music from there because it just seems like a pretty pretty natural step over. Yeah, so you were coming into it from more the industrial side or the synth pop side or what? Or that whole mix? Uh, you know, you start with Nine Inch Nails is Broken, and that's the industrial side. And then you take a step backwards to Pretty Hate Machine, and that's the synth pop side. So, you know, it all kind of just becomes one big mashed potato. 
Trent Reznor, a man for all seasons. Yeah, I mean, each album, well, each of his first four albums were very different. And then after that, he's just kind of, you know, one of those guys who was better when he was unhappy. Well, you know, everybody has an opportunity, you know, everybody who has earned it should get to go emeritus, you know. But let's go ahead and hear our first track. And, And this is Underground Resistance, Gamma Ray from 1991. underground resistance with their gamma ray track from 1991 and underground resistance i love these guys Uh, this is one group i was i'm pretty angry that i didn't know about in the 90s because i know i would have loved them in a period when i was dismissing all the techno and house i was hearing which wasn't a great deal um but had i known about underground resistance i have no doubt i would have been all over it they were essentially the public enemy of techno you think that's a fair statement yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, uh, very apt comparison. Cool. So they're politically militant, but they're also similar to Fugazi in that they were very conscious of music biz shenanigans. And so they, you know, Jeff Mills and Mad Mike Banks were the main uh, masterminds of Underground Resistance, not just the group, but also the label. And they spent months, very much like Derek May and Juan Atkins in their bedrooms, scheming this stuff through another intellectually driven Detroit techno group they plotted their course carefully for months thinking about how they would pay people thinking about how they would work with distributors they decided not to sign with a single distributor but instead to work with as many distributors as possible and to work directly with retail as much as possible so that gave them an advantage uh at the moment although now it's good thing that youtube is the wild west because where Richie Hot and Plus Eight stuff is pretty much all available on the streaming services. Underground Resistance, I at least had a much harder time finding on the streaming services. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that the reason why we didn't hear about Underground Resistance at the time is because they were too underground for their own good, kind of thing. I mean, and it's funny because uh, there's a there, there's an implication from Simon Reynolds that he went and approached Mad Mike and tried to get an interview, and Mad Mike basically told him to sod off uh, because uh, he wanted the story of Detroit Tech to be told by a, a black person from Detroit. And, yeah. And it, it, that's interesting because techno rebels author Dan Sicko is white and uh, Jacqueline Coe, who made a, a documentary called cycles of the mental machine, which uh, Mike Banks is all in they're, they're both white and Mike talked to them. So maybe Simon Reynolds has caught him on a grumpy day or something. There's, there's a little bit of a duality where underground resistance goes really hardcore uh, sometimes and then other times they're a bit softer. So, so, you know, sometimes they got their military boots on and sometimes they don't. It's kind of, kind of funny, but uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, you have to imagine the experience a lot of the artists had with Chicago's tracks records really strengthened underground resistance's decision to do everything themselves. Cause it wasn't just the majors screwing people over, like anybody who had too much uh, power in any of the steps of the process could screw you over. So underground resistance made sure that they, they had a, a finger attached to every single piece of, of the pie all the way up and down to make sure that there wasn't any shenanigans going on. Like Trax Records used to, none of the people in Chicago or Detroit even knew that there was something going on in, in Europe until European reporters showed up at their doorstep to interview them. And before that, they didn't even realize Trax Records was selling their stuff over there. So there was some serious shenanigans going on. And I don't blame Underground Resistance for number one, deciding to do it all themselves. And number two, taking such a, a, a very aggressive stance against the system. Yeah, absolutely. And from Track Records' perspective, I mean, why would you tell these kids then you have to pay royalties on all those sweet uh, overseas profits? So, you know, two sides to every story, kids. Let's not forget. And like Public Enemy, they also trucked in paramilitary imagery. They they kind of modeled themselves on Public Enemy's S1Ws, Professor Griff's semi-infamous security force for Public Enemy, and also Front 242, the Belgian techno or industrial group who are the progenitors of Eurobody music. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. 
Okay, and and they had a whole terrorist chic thing, and there was Leibach that that played with fascist imagery as well. So, and that was the other thing about underground resistance. They never quite let let on exactly. You knew that they were black militants, but they didn't they didn't they kept their political cards close to the vest. Otherwise, and and a lot of militaristic imagery and a lot of songs. I wouldn't say from the Nazi or Japanese perspective in World War II, but about those topics that, you know, use seem to seem to play kind of ambivalent. But they, the main thing was they were militant. They were into military hardware. And um, even though they start with the their first track had a house singer on it, which Yolanda, which is kind of funny and ironic. Did you go back and listen to that one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most interesting thing about Underground Resistance to me is that for such a militant group, they're so open musically to, to different influences because that Yolanda track is, is a straight, almost disco house track. And there's a lot of key Detroit techno sounds in their tracks, but you can also hear European hardcore in there. They weren't afraid to bang it out. At the same time, they're having fun in their tracks, like the 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 track that I picked for Underground Resistance has a sample of Hearts Barracuda, so that's you know that's a lot of fun that a lot of serious techno guys don't do, but they also do serious business like Suburban Night, real deep shit, you know. So there's techno, hardcore, acid, minimal, deep, and then later on they go and make high tech jazz too. So they're they're just all over the place, and for a, a genre like Detroit techno, which purists really try to put in a box. A lot of these second wave Detroit techno guys really broke a lot of rules going right to the edge of hardcore and then going all the way back to ambient acid, you know, a lot of boundaries pushed, which is what I enjoy so much about this second wave of techno. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard more from later sort of wannabe techno purists and and the whole only synthesizers, only drum machines, no samples, no breakbeats, all these rules about what you can't do. And I was very happy that Underground Resistance and the Plus 8 guys didn't seem to follow those rules at all. And they start, other than the first house track, though, Underground Resistance comes out banging and pretty hardcore. The, uh, you know, the Sonic EP in 91, I think, and a whole, as Reynolds says, they upped the ante with a series of insurrectionary releases in 1991. The Riot EP, the Fuel for the Fire 12-inch. They said they celebrated a kind of Dionysian politics, a cult of orgiastic, unreconstructed anger. Tracks like Predator and Elimination resemble target-seeking missiles, remorseless and implacable killing machines. So definitely hardcore. They fit right in. I, I experimented a little bit with throwing their early tracks in with the hardcore mix from 91 that I made a few chapters back. And you can totally see why they fit in on the dance floors in Europe and Britain at that time. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and, and again for those uh, once we get to Richie Hot and his his early side projects as well, we're we're right in there. So it's very ironic that that for Detroit techno, which is uh, just there's a lot there's a lot of purists out there. It's one of the one of the one of the biggest kind of snooty genres that you're gonna find. Uh, but the guys at the beginning they were slutting it up with the with the really cheesy stuff. So. Absolutely, and 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 glad they were. And and Underground Resistance also uh, put out stuff as X101, Sonic Destroyer, the B-side G-Force, and they jacked with the vinyl. They got into writing messages on, on the etching messages into the vinyl when they manufactured it, and also changing the grooves. The grooves on on I think it's G-Force are bunched normally, then separate into spirals. And, and one of them, I think it was Banks, said, we thought if we could physically alter how the record worked, it kind of sends out a signal that things aren't always the way they're supposed to be or appear to be, that maybe you should pay more attention to what you're buying than what you're listening to. And I don't know, did it, did it penetrate your consciousness? Did you ever come across any of these etched vinyls? Yeah, I've seen I've seen a couple of them, and they're they're really cool. And Detroit was really lucky to have some passionate people running the, the, a vinyl pressing company there. Uh, is, this is this is the work of the National Sound Corporation, and they were responsible for a lot of those freaky records coming out. Like they released a Kevin Saunderson record that could be played forwards or backwards. Uh, Jeff Mills' Rings of Saturn had locked grooves where you placed the needle on a part of the record, and it would just 
play in a complete loop just for infinity until you lifted it up and put it on another loop groove and then it would play that one so instead of it just like uh you know spiraling in towards the middle it would just sit on a locked groove and just play and and that really got the creative juices flowing for all these guys like there's underground resistance cds with tracks that are designed to play only when you're hitting the rewind button on the cd player so they, they got really crazy <laughs> and let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Fuse, Richie Houghton's group, FU from Fuse, F-U, one of Richie Houghton group. But let's go ahead and wrap up talking about Underground Resistance before we move to Plus 8 and Richie Houghton and Plastic Man and all that stuff. Underground Resistance, uh, the stuff we were talking about, they quickly achieved cult status in Europe. Their sound fit right in with the hardcore sounds that were the scene. Um, Reynolds says the early bellicose UR peaked with the awesome Death Star, featuring the slogan on the vinyl, Quote, unit Death Star mission, eliminate anti-underground forces. And they follow that up with a single called Message to the Majors, which Rick Rubin's uh, American Records and others were signing up techno and, and house band groups, producers at the time, and making this push that totally flopped at the time. And uh, UR was Underground Resistance was letting everybody know they weren't having it. And then they put out the World Power Alliance sublabel and did three one-sided singles together. And and this is kind of where uh, the three guys, Mad Mike Banks, Jeff Mills, and also Robert Hood, um, kind of dabble in going solo. It's sort of like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, one of these sort of supergroup things where Banks puts out his kamikaze single about Japanese pilots in World War II. Mills puts out the Sea Wolf about Nazi uh, U-boat captains in World War II. And Hood puts out the Belgian resistance, the one shout out to an allied pow power. All the power is a, a misnomer here. It was the resistance of the Nazis who totally conquered Belgium. And so connecting the underground resistance with the Belgian resistance, pretty good pandering to the audience, I have to say. Yeah, I know for sure. And then there's also Night of the Hunter, who's probably their um, – or Night of the Hunter's a chapter. The Suburban Knight, James Pennington, is probably their most important other artist that was on their labels. Uh, he had been a first-wave techno guy. He he worked on Inner City with Saunderson. He, um, his first two singles came out on Derek May's Transmount label. His uh, 1990 Art of Stalking was actually recorded m many years earlier and didn't come out until 1990. So I don't know how good a label boss Derek May was either. But uh, Art of Stalking made an impact. Reynolds calls it a pioneering slice of Detroit dark side, which chapter we talked about last week. And then uh, he joins up with Underground Resistance, and they put out his stuff, his neck nocturne nocturbulous behavior and his uh, dark energy album uh, 1990 came out in 1994 an afrocentric statement with tracks like mau mau midnight sunshine Mad mind of a panther and they also put out drexia's aquatic invasion and bubble metropolis albums and and scan seven and drexia is that am i saying that right any idea yeah yeah no that's right okay cool those guys are kind of a tip of the kind of hyper conceptual stuff that you are is going to get into well trouble with reynolds with anyway and and for my listening it's much less appeal the later conceptual stuff is much less instantly appealing than the early uh, hardcore stuff that they did and and he identifies this sort of tension that runs through them as that they're Quote, a dialectic that runs through the serious black pop, a tension between the militant tendency and the mystic impulse. So on the militant side, you've got you know people like The Last Poets or Gil Scott Heron, Public Enemy and KRS-One in the hip-hop world, versus the sort of black sci-fi of, say, Sun Ra or Scratch Perry, George Clinton and P-Funk, Earth, Wind and Fire, A.R. Kane, later on Cool Keith, and most of Detroit Techno's on that second side. Um, and UR jumps back and forth. Sometimes they're militant, and then they drop something like the X-102 
discovers the Rings of Saturn concept album from 1992, where they've got a track for each one of Saturn's three rings and all nine moons. That one is a hoot to listen to. Yeah, and, and there's there's a really cool YouTube video that's up there too that has the entire album, like really good sound and tons of footage of Saturn. And I don't think there's a better way to experience it than uh, you know lighting up a joint and sitting in front of a big screen TV and just playing it. I, you know, I can't endorse the drug use bong maybe in, in my case. Um, but, but, you know, yes, the, that video is excellent and a great way to dig it. And there's, then there's the X one Oh three Atlantis concept. And this is around the time when Reynolds particularly singles out Jeff Mills as focusing more on the concepts than on the music. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to parse out how much, because Reynolds has definitely got a bias. As we talked about the intelligent techno chapter, the ambient trance thing, he really doesn't like this turn to navel-gazing. He wants to keep people focused on the dance floor and and starts raising red flags as soon as, as you get conceptual and trippy. To a certain degree, though, you got to appreciate the fact that after making a bunch of bangers, they're able to kind of sit back and, and work on these these concept albums and, and taking them seriously, too. Like, there's nothing worse than a half-baked concept album, but uh, X-102 discovers the rings of Saturn is really solid. I haven't gotten a chance to really... I, I played uh, the Atlantis album in the background. I have haven't had a chance to really pay attention to it though, but it's it's all pretty good stuff. And and one of the things I really like about Underground Resistance, as far as how they did their label and stuff, is that uh, it was very varied. And you've got like stuff like Suburban Night. It's it's spookier. It's not as straightforward. And uh, that Drexia stuff is uh, it's it's practically electro electro. So they're they're kind of they're touching on a whole bunch of different notes. And and you know I think uh, the more the more variety the better in general like there's even a lot of sounds coming out from them later on it almost sounds kind of like they've been hearing some of the bloop and bass and stuff like orbital and the orb over in the uk and they're taking that back and they're giving it a detroit techno spin to it and that's really cool yeah and they definitely were going over to europe and belgium and and djing and and I can't remember. Yeah, Underground Banks. Resistance was was a live show because, and it was crazy because they'd go over there and 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 it would be Jeff Mills DJing and scratching on three decks, and uh, Mike Banks was a session musician before he became an electronic musician, so he was uh, he was actually able to do a lot of synth line work and stuff like that. So they they were actually one of uh, when we talk about live PA's, I don't remember if we touched on this too much, but uh, live performance artists or live public address systems or whatever else like that, a lot of them are fake. A lot of them are just you hit play secretly on a dat machine and then you pretend like you're twiddling knobs and stuff like that but uh underground resistance they were they were the real deal and they put on quite a live show and i think it was in last night a dj saved my life but either mills or banks has a quote about you know coming from detroit i'd never really been around white people and the first time around that many i'm around that many of them it's I'm in Belgium and there's five thousand white kids going crazy for my music so you know pretty uh dis disjointing experience i would think and yet ironically it's uh richie hotton and john aquaviva from plus eight the next level we're about to talk about that had the more upsetting experiences in europe and we'll get to that but first let's talk about plus eight this is the label that richie hotton who like you mentioned was a dj at the shelter the industrial club that had a had a dance room in detroit he meets up with john aquaviva they uh get together click on a mental level quickly define their philosophy, quote, screw what's going on today or yesterday. We're about what's going on tomorrow. And um, they bust out with just a chain of industrial tinged hardcore that really fit in 1992, um, that total hardcore scene. But let's take a sponsor break and come back and um, finish talking about plus eight. So let's talk about Richie Houghton. For me, his background is reminiscent. If it's reminiscent of anybody we've talked about so far, it's Aphex Twin and his whole child prodigy in Cornwall thing. Richie Houghton is a British kid, right, whose dad moved over to Windsor, Ontario to work in the auto industry. His dad's a total computer geek, and Houghton, Houghton is raised on electronic music, Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk. Then as a teen, his first love is Front 242 and electro body, electronic body music. Then he discovers Detroit Techno, that it's right there in his neighborhood, uh, crosses the lake and starts um, you know, DJing at Shelter right there in Detroit. And 
meets John Aquaviva. They put together this label, Plus Eight, which is a pun on the highest setting on Technics turntables, which are just coming around in this period. And everybody's playing tracks faster and faster, and, and the Technics let you go faster than anybody. And they're also really into Jeff Mills, who was on the Wizard, who was on WJLB as the Wizard six nights a week in Detroit. So kind of the heir to Electrify Mojo. And they immediately put out a record on a white label, and all it says is the future sound of Detroit, which pissed a few people off from the old, uh, the original crop of techno. But it's really, uh, it kind of goes to show you that uh, that uh, that, uh, that some gumption isn't the worst thing in the world to have. Uh, this is, you know, as, as I said, it's a kid from Windsor, which is right across the river from Detroit in Canada. So he's crossing over and checking it out. And and getting into it, and he has he has the stones to put this out, and call it the future sound of Detroit, and uh, you know I, I gotta hand it to him. Uh, some sometimes you, you just gotta you just gotta sell yourself and sell yourself hard, and these guys did it, and they made it because of it, or or, or not maybe not because of it, because obviously the music had to stand on its own. But uh, you know people are always gonna tell you to stay in your lane and be quiet and and earn your stripes and wait till you're noticed. These guys here forced their way into the scene as kind of outsiders. And, and while there there's stories of of them going over to Derek Mays and them considering like the Belleville Three, like uh, it, it was because it wasn't a big scene. Everybody was kind of around. If you were if you were going out to these nights, these techno nights, you're gonna run into these guys and they'd end up at each other's houses and stuff like that. And they were friends. But uh, as Richie Houghton said, he realized that you know Derek May has a circle, Kevin Saunderson has a circle. Who is our circle? We need to build a circle now ourselves, and, and we need to carve out our own space and uh, that's what they did uh, even even coming from coming from Canada and being considered outsiders and 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 being white in a in a city where the music had been predominantly being made by black people and I don't know I can't imagine whether or not that was uh, you know comfortable or not for for either side to kind of grapple with at the time or if there was any kind of sore soreness going around on account of that as well I'm sure there was there there would have to be I mean it's classic white privilege appropriation to for white kids to move into a, a black scene and declare themselves the future of said scene you know and, and that fortunately they backed it up with the music and they did make the personal relationships with both the first waivers of the belleville three and also with underground resistance their closest peers and they had a friendly rivalry through this whole period with underground resistance they're both going over to europe a lot and and definitely are thinking along the same lines but like you said, they backed it up with the music and Technarchy uh, by Cybersonic, which was uh, Houghton and Aquaviva and Dan Bell, um, really hit hit the spot with the hardcore scene in Europe. Reynolds says the ponderous bumblebee of a baseline slotted perfectly next to the bruising bombast of Euro hardcore, um, but with the unique plus eight quality, uh, a cold a cold Midwestern trippiness. He says my my spell correct. Correct. Keeps doing things like changing a cold mid midwestern trippiness into a cold midwestern drippiness, which is not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost kind of po more poetic for it to be drip midwestern drippiness. Uh, I really feel like I'm one of these AI bots that's just churning out search engine bait. You know, uh, just like earlier they wanted, they changed the Mau Mau track by Suburban Night into Moo Moo. So. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you hear me just blurbing gibberish, it's because of my autocorrect on the spelling on this text uh, program I'm using. But anyway, for the next 18 months after their 1990 debut, they unleashed a series of progressively faster and fiercer tracks, fueled by a friendly rivalry with Underground Resistance. And then Houghton forms a group with uh, Joey Beltram and Mundo Music that we've talked about from Mentasm and Energy Flash, the New Jersey producers. They put out uh, Vortex by Final Exposure and are totally hitting the spot. And then Houghton has a solo project, which we played, Fuse, which stands for Futuristic Underground Subsonic Experiment. So he's clearly paying attention to underground resistance uh, with that kind of stuff. And he's got you know tracks like Substance Abuse, FU, and FU2. He really gets into the Roland 303. He's one of the first producers to revive uh, the squelchy bass sound that was the original Acid tracks of Chicago Future and others who produced those tracks in Chicago that then became 
probably the music most closely associated with the initial Acid House summer of 1989 in Britain and had kind of become written off as cheesy and dated uh, this uh, by the early 90s when Houghton gets back into it. So he leads the charge in kind of this retro techno fascination with recently uh, used and then abandoned technology. And um, for Reynolds' money, F.U. is is – Hot, might be Houghton's all-time masterpiece, a dark exaltation, a sense of locked-on-target propulsion. and um, It's definitely it, one of his more dance floor-friendly uh, – I mean, Houghton swings – Hot and cold on whether or not he wants to, to 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 you know bang it out and give these these dance floor bangers or whether he wants to kind of concentrate on the more minimal sides of techno, uh, his Plastic Man stuff, which I never got at the time. I, I love it now because I'm I'm very much more comfortable just sitting down on the couch and, and listening to listening to an artist album and not needing everything to be a dance floor banger. But I remember back when I was uh, DJing and everything needed to be something that I could potentially play. I hated Plastic man but but now I, I i really feel it and before he sort of backs off with plastic man though he goes he pushes it harder and harder they release tracks by circuit breaker the overkill and friends e get it e haha ha. uh very much in the hardcore spirit of 92 and then cybersonic put out a track called thrash and hotton's described that later as a piss take that that this was a message to djs that will and producers, whoa, it's time to put the brakes on. But they go ahead and follow it up with another one, Cybersonic's Machine Gun, backed with Jackhammer. And Houghton says, we don't even like that record. It was just a statement to the rest of the rave scene. Like, we don't know what you guys are doing, but it's not what we're about. So they reach this point. It's very much like the backlash that we saw um, from groups like The Orb and, the, and Orbital and The Black Dog in England that – these guys are, quote, aghast at the drug-fueled dynamic driving hardcore to new extremes of brain-dead brutalism. And the distinction, Reynolds points out, is that hardcore was really music for raves, not for dance clubs. And Houghton and these guys are coming from a club background where one DJ has got plenty of time to tell a story in a set with lows and highs and peaks and valleys and, and slow parts and fast parts where he would be bringing the hard, cold techno, but he'd be thrown on a lot of Chicago and New Jersey garage, Chicago house and New Jersey garage at the same time. So it was more of a well-rounded thing, but the rave dynamic when they would have multiple DJs on the bill and everybody only had an hour to play, that meant you could do nothing but drop the hits. And then the next guy would have to do the same thing. So that sort of um, Balearic spirit of, of mellowing out and then picking up the intensity, that was lost. And that's something that that sort of old school heads like Houghton, who was a very young guy at the time, but but veteran of the scene, reacted against. And yeah, it's funny because they start the label as plus eight as a joke saying that theirs is the fastest music that you're going to be hearing and stuff like that. And then they, they end up getting out – out hardcore by the other guys and it, and it freaks them out. And, uh, there's, there's nothing more disappointing than, than constructing like a really interesting kind of sound and then playing it out and just having people say, this is too slow. This is too boring. This is, this is not my thing. So I can totally see how they'd be going over there and, and trying to maybe play something a little bit deeper and just people not having any of it. And that being a real put off. Absolutely. And let's hear our next track. This is a little bit of a jump ahead. This is Carl Craig from 1997 with Televised Green Smoke. That was Carl Craig's televised green smoke from 1997. But let's get back. We'll get to Carl Craig in a minute, but let's get back to, to Richie Houghton. And there's this particular moment. There's really two turning points in the, that Reynolds relates from the Houghton and Aquaviva's experience DJing in Europe. First was in early 1992, they're at a Rotterdam club called Parkside. This is the hotbed of GABA. 
and um, Gabba is Dutch for buddy. And a lot of it, the scene was dock workers and other you know blue collar workers letting off steam at the dance floor. DJs were playing thrash beats, which were stripped down version of Cybersonic's thrash, sped up to 150 beats per minute. And Hot and Aquavita noticed the crowd yelling Yoden Yoden, which means Jews choose, and were horrified. And they were initially thought it was a football chant, and then they they hear it and figure out what they're saying, and they're just absolutely freaked out. Later on, they find out it was a football chant, but kind of an anti-Semitic one because the Rotterdam fans—that's something they yell at the uh, Amsterdam Ajax team. Because yeah, it's, the, it's like where you find out, oh, it's it's no big deal. It's a football chant. Then you find out, no, no, it is a anti-Semitic football chant. <laughs> exactly. And and part of it is because the Ajax fans will fly the Israeli flag. And because of Amsterdam's past as a mercantile city, they identify very much with the Jewish people and, and Israel. And so their football rivals are going to identify against them just because that's the nature of sports. But, you know, Ricky Richie Houghton's attitude was, you know, screw that. I'm not a Nazi. I can make people rock without making them hostile. So that's when he starts pulling back. And after that, their philosophy is intensity is good, but hard is bad. And they want to bring back the soul and funk. And so they start Definitive, uh, which is a house-oriented sublabel of Plus 8. And then Houghton forms Plastic Man, which is his attempt to fuse Detroit techno and Chicago acid puts out a whole album called Sheet One that Reynolds calls One Long Ode to the Synergy of 303s and LSD, which is kind of ironic because the Detroit scene is the one scene in our topic that's abstentious, that's not a druggy scene. But here, Houghton puts out the first label, the first album as Plastic Man, and the album cover originally looked like a sheet of blotter acid. I wasn't paying any attention to the scene, but I can remember my buddy at the record store holding that up to me just to show me the joke. And it turns out some kid in Texas got arrested and they and <laughs> had to wait in jail while they tested his album cover to see if it was blotter acid. So kind of flirting with both sides uh, of uh, it. Yeah, the, the the story goes that the plastic man name came from the fact that he used to do acid and lay on the floor of his kitchen and, and just stare at the linoleum. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's right and wrong ways to do everything. And uh, there's always like a little bit of uh, – uh, what's 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 the word here? You just because you do drugs doesn't mean you can't criticize people for doing drugs the wrong way. I suppose you can say, even though it might seem a little bit a uh, little bit out out both sides of your mouth, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And plus, it was also um, bringing over European producers and putting them out. And so they put out Speedy J, which is the the cognomen of Dutch producer Joachim Pop. Who or Pap, who played live at the Berlin Independence Days in 1991. So they're one of the first groups of guys to really cultivate that Berlin burgeoning techno scene in Berlin. And his track Pullover, Reynolds says, kickstarted German trance. And Houghton had an interesting statement about uh, Speedy J. He said, although he's Dutch, he's one of the foreigners who helped put the second wave of Detroit on the map. Speedy is as much Detroit and Chicago as anyone. He took that, took it to that other level. He set the tone in Europe. The Germans had their own scene, but we certainly gave them the impetus to become one of the techno powerhouses. So I assume that Speedy J was playing a lot of these Detroit tracks as a DJ there. And and then, you know, when when Houghton and Aquaviva went over to play, met each other and and formed this musical alliance and and pull over. Definitely a, a standout track from that period. Yeah, I mean, uh, Plus 8 got a reputation for being an international label. And it's funny because in, in the early days, they they used to put the names of the cities of all their label mates on on the label. And one of the, one of the first ones was London, but it wasn't London, UK. It was uh, London, Ontario. So it's another one of those examples <laughs> where they're willing to kind of make it seem like they're, they're maybe a little bit bigger than they are so that they could fake it till they make it. You know, uh, you got, you got Speedy J and you see, so you could put Rotterdam on there and oh, you got Kenishi so you could put Japan on there. And it's like, oh, we've got offices all over the world and you know that's like a, a, a rave 101 trick you always want a flyer with uh if you're in north america you want a flyer with a uk flag on it if you're in in the london you want to have a usa flag or you know australia or something else like that you always want to get the those international hotbeds to make it seem like this is this is the international action that's going on here we're plugged into all of it 
And there was international action going on there because this Detroit-Berlin alliance becomes a very big thing. Um, Mad Mike Banks and Jeff Mills move there, or Blake Baxter and Jeff Mills move there. Uh, Juan Atkins and Eddie Flash and Folks uh, both signed with Tresor, the German label. Um, they collaborate with 3MB's Thomas Fellman and Moritz van Oswald. Uh, Tresor's second release was subtitled Berlin, Detroit, a techno alliance. So it's very explicitly spelled out. And the Berlin people are very happy to be identified with Detroit. And, you know, Frankfurt was also in the, on, on that in West Germany. Their four sync and PCP labels were very UR, underground resistance influenced. And PCP's uh, The Mover was the artist's name. Night Flight, Nonstop to Chaos, and the Frontal Sickness EP and Final Sickness EP were very influenced by Suburban Night's whole sound. So uh, the Germans are fully on board with embracing the Detroit techno and 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 adding some international shine to themselves. Yeah, there, there was definitely. I mean, you had clubs like Trezor that 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 held a hard line for uh, for techno, and it's you know it's important to have there. There's always scenes kind of going on, and if there's not somebody who kind of plants a flag somewhere, then things will drift wherever wherever they may go. But you got people like Trezor in Germany, and they really kept kept the sound. Uh, kind of closely associated with Detroit techno and brought over a lot of these guys and and really kept on that sound and that's why it developed into into such a big thing there while maybe in other countries everything slid into hardcore or it slid into you know other other kinds of genres or evolved out from from anything recognizable from where it started yeah and ironically the plus eight guys end up getting freaked out by trance within a couple of years as well that, that there was a, a night i think it was aqua viva that was um in berlin and people were playing trance at 160 beats per minute and the way they were dancing looked like a nazi waltz to him and he got so freaked out he refused to play in germany for 18 months and i gotta say i've been to berlin once and i found it just sort of emotionally overwhelming, you know, beautiful city, having a great time in the beer garden. Everybody there was super friendly and nice. And then you walk past the beautiful park with the beautiful uh, cabin in the lake on the island in the lake where they planned the final solution. And then you go over and here was where the, you know, checkpoint Charlie was and the Soviets were grinding Germany under their boot for 50 years. So, you know, it's a heavy place. I can totally sympathize with being, a little overwhelmed, especially when people start manifesting mass crowd behavior in Germany. Can easily see where that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And then Reynolds goes on a riff about all the commonalities between Detroit and and Northern Europe. The they had they shared a lot of musical influences. Obviously, Kraftwerk was a big influence on both elect, electro body music or Euro body music was a big influence on Detroit, and obviously was big in Europe. Both of them were heavily industrial areas. Of course, Detroit's been de-industrialized, but Germany is still cranking out the cars. And lots of ethnic commonalities, because a lot of Scandinavians and Germans who immigrated to America ended up gravitating to the upper Midwest. So so they're, they're totally cousins there. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Plastic Man. This is Plastic Man's Conception from Classic Man's Conception, which should give you a taste of kind of his, Richie Houghton's reaction against both trance and hardcore. Drastic drop in tempo on that whole album. He starts playing a lot of house and garage in his DJ sets, develops this elaborate anti-rave philosophy, sets up parties in Detroit and Ontario with no light shows, has a heaven and hell event with a black dance room and a white chill out room. And he's sort of on the forefront and allied with the intelligent techno guys, like we talked about that, you know, uh, I think uh, some of the Detroit guys were on that very first intelligent, artificial intelligence co uh, compilation album. And then Reynolds says that, you know, since Detroit techno had never been a drug oriented music, it was a natural haven for 
these DJs and producers who are repelled by the drug scene and, and the, the hardcore sound to look at as a model. And so, quote, starting in 1993, serious-minded producers in Europe and Britain were embarking on a return to Detroit principles as a way of sidestepping what they perceived as drug-determined dead ends of hardcore and hard trance. And then he says there are three figures they look at and three directions to follow. One was the high-tech jazz that Mad Mike Banks went off into when Underground Resistance split up. And for a while, it became his solo group after Jeff Mills and Robert Hood quit. And then the austere minimalism of Jeff Mills. And then the softcore romanticism of Carl Craig, which my autocorrect changed to software romanticism of Carl Craig. Man, it's um, got a heavy hand, doesn't it? I know, I know. You'd think softcore would be in a style. I guess they never subscribed to Cinemax back in the day, but the softcore romanticism of Carl Craig. And Carl Craig's the third guy uh, that's named in the subhead of the chapter. And I have to say, Reynolds is not exactly fair to Carl Craig. He does admit that that he's called the producer's producer, the guru of softcore, tells his story. The guy's a protege of Derek May. Uh, but as a teen, he was into The Cure, Bauhaus, The Smiths, plus the avant-funk of Throbbing Gristle and Mark Stewart, plus, of course, the basic you know, Prince, Kraftwerk, Italo, progressive disco stuff that everybody in Detroit was up to. He toured Europe with May as part of Rhythm is Rhythm, worked on the 1989 remix of Strings of Life, co-writes Chaotic Harmony, uh, Rhythm is Rhythm's 1991 track, which was the flip side of Icon, which was Derek May's only 1990s release. And then forms his own levels, labels Retroactive and Planet E, and has just a ton of alter egos, Psyche, BFC, P69, Shop, Interzone Orchestra, the Paperclip people. And Yeah, he's got tons and tons and tons of remixes as well. Like I mainly knew of Carl Craig because so many times you'd get a record and there'd be a Carl Craig remix on it. And it was always the best thing on the record. And, uh, but, uh, I was largely ignorant, ignorant to it, to his album work and a lot of his side projects and his, uh, his alter egos and all of that stuff is really good too. Uh, I'm, uh, very, very impressed. I kind of overlooked everything, but his dance floor, uh, creations, uh, that he, that he would do for, for labels that under remixes. Yeah. And I was, you know, coming to this after reading Reynolds, I was really, you know, I had I had my playlist set up and I'm just letting him shuffle through and repeatedly I go, oh, this is kicking. What is this? Oh, it's Carl Craig again. You know, and so I thought Reynolds was a little bit unfair. He does see that, you know, uh, Craig is Detroit's, quote, most gifted miniaturist and that he conjured up the image of a lonely boy moping in a bedroom studio, which, you know, you can take. Uh, as <laughs> a good thing or a bad thing. But, you know, he says the low-key anxiety of tracks like Neurotic Behavior were a world away from the psychotic tantrums of hardcore techno and that Craig becomes a role model for techno artists like the Black Dog in Britain who want to make album-length home-oriented mind food. But then Reynolds starts getting his disses in with things like it makes your brain itch rather than your feet twitch. And, and he, he quotes um, Tony Marcus saying that Craig's desire by his Cognomen 69 was an emotional bomb rather than dance record. And that the album More Songs About Food and Revolutionary Art was a bourgeois bohemian crusade for refinement, taste, and elegance. So Carl Craig kind of becomes his personification of this dry, ascetic, intellectual, anti-dance floor thing that Reynolds is just all up against. Well, I can see because uh, a lot of people look at Carl Craig and when they're trying to describe the kind of techno, they say it's deep techno. And I know that uh, Reynolds doesn't really like it when you start using words like progressive or deep uh, and, and siding up against uh, music that is traditionally dance floor oriented. And, you know, I picked that Carl Craig song that we played earlier because I felt like it uh, it showed you the Detroit techno sound of kind of almost a orbital style bleep and blue uh, bleep and bass type type rhythm. And there's a lot of jazz and there's a lot of funk and uh, Carl Craig is definitely influenced by tons of Motown. He has really good Motown mixes out there on the internet. So he'll just straight up play Motown uh, as opposed to techno sometimes. And so you can, you can see how he has influences and he's not afraid to use them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I don't know. I was totally pleasantly surprised by the, the Carl Craig that I've listened to so far and look forward to listening to more of it. And, it wasn't just Carl Craig at this point. Like the the former members of Underground Resistance, also became models to this sort of purist techno revival moment in Europe. And and Reynolds has a whole riff I thought was interesting as a rockist that he compares 
the Belleville Three to the three guitars for the Yardbirds, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. And these were guys who were such acolytes of Muddy Waters and the Chicago blues scene that they were trying to totally recreate it in England. And Eric Clapton's whole career is basically an exercise in getting more and more reactionary and and trying to get closer and closer to the original blues sound he was fond of. And Reynolds points out that the Belleville Three were not the originators, that even though they're black Americans, their models were Kraftwerk and Giorgio Moroder, and that they were emulating these European artists. And so when you get European DJs trying to blindly imitate exactly what the Belleville Three were doing and limiting their palette to just the tools the Belleville Three had originally, meaning you know just synthesizers and drum machines, no samples, no breakbeats, no hip-hop influences, um, that you can get this really ascetic anal style that's just you know more about what it's not than what it is and and you know that the increasingly conceptual stuff that that mills and mad mike banks um and and hood also robert hood were putting out and reynolds is really vicious to hood calls him the aural equivalent of bread and water um robert hood was basically the creator of minimal techno and again so if you're if you're coming from simon reynolds position which i love which is basically that like you know uh dance floor music is the crucible of creativity and where all of the weirdness comes through and then you go and you see something like minimal which is uh you know uh, you know i guess you'd say pretty intellectual i don't know i i can see i you know you understand where he's coming from because at this point we're all we're all pretty familiar with what his likes and, and dislikes are. Yeah, and absolutely. And it's one of those things when we're about to get to Jungle. I think we're doing pirate radio next week. And then um, Jungle is going to take over London in two weeks. And so the fact that Jungle evolved out of hardcore, I think Reynolds just took us this absolute vindication. And I would too, if I had been in the scene at this time and all the smart guys are saying, oh, no, no, let's get away from that druggy techno. Let's let's not let the punchers on the dance floor tell us what to do. Let's let's see what they're doing in Detroit. Let's calm it down. Let's slow it down. Let's be a little bit more intellectual. Let's make albums to listen to at home. And Reynolds was saying, nah, I'm going to put my money on the hardcore side. I think this is the Black Sabbath side of this bet. And you guys are the, you know, 10 years after and the blues revival purists. And, you know, it seems like he was right with Jungle um, emerging as this incredibly powerful scene. And the first Afro-Anglo scene to make a global impact. And that's a big deal. Like you've had a lot of black Britishers who've contributed to various scenes, whether they're, you know, contributing to the dub and ska scenes uh, coming out of Jamaica, or they're contributing to UK pop or doing hip house and, and things like that. But none of them had carved out a unique, distinct music until Jungle does. And that's a really big deal. And a, and a unique, distinct music that, like, unlike Shut Up and Dance, everybody around the world paid attention and respected Jungle in a way that previous Afro-Anglo um, musical attempts had not been respected around the world by the rest of the African-American diaspora. So I see what he's doing, but nonetheless, I feel like to a certain extent, he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Yeah, just to put it into context of, of what it was, what was kind of going on in 2000 around when this this book came out is, is that... Uh, techno had started to be pretty codified. You had a lot of those purists that we talked about before who were, who were making a lot of rules about things. And uh, techno was basically flooded with a lot of DJs doing the same thing or following the, the blueprints of a couple of people. And it's ironic that, you know, we mentioned these core people in the second movement of techno and how they varied so widely through their career. And there was clearly no real rule book. They just did whatever they wanted and they all went in wildly different directions from the start to the end of their careers. So for people to come and try to take that widespread thing and try to nail it down into this one kind of, uh, you know, to a certain degree boring because it's not going anywhere. Once, once a genre is being codified and you have to play within a certain set of rules, it just naturally becomes less dynamic. And I hate that. I hated a lot of the techno coming out in, in the two thousands because it all sounded the same and it wasn't taking risks. Uh, but you know, like I, I don't fit Carl Craig in, into that box. I don't blame Robert hood for that. Those guys, were all pioneers doing interesting things. It's the people that came out after them that just wanted to stick it 
right at that point and not change anything and ride that wave. They're the ones that I blame. And they're the ones I imagine, Simon, you know, I don't want to put words in Simon Reynolds' mouth. I also don't want to castigate him because it's a great book. And most of the time, I completely agree with pretty much everything he says, even if I don't like it. <laughs> but uh, that that's where I kind of see the the whole denigration of, of certain elements of techno in that they just became stale and locked in. and uh, And that's that. Yeah, and denied the future, which, like you said, there was no future in that kind of purist techno, which is ironic since techno was the most futuristic and visionary of all the three original styles of uh, electronic dance music that emerged in America in the 1980s. So that's it for this week. For Ryan Hartness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been talking about Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And when we come back next week, we'll be talking about pirate radio. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss the history of pirate radio in the UK and why it was so critical to the emergence of jungle. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.